0: Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says, Donate. Thank you for your kindness. friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today we have the honor of being with Elena Norberg-Hodge. I'm holding in my hands her latest book called Local is Our Future, Steps to an Economic Happiness. Elena Norberg-Hodge is the pioneer of the Worldwide Localization Movement and recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize, the Goy Peace Prize, and the Arthur Morgan Award. She is the author of the inspirational classic Ancient Futures and producer of the award-winning documentary The Economics of Happiness. Thank you, Elena, for being with us.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
0: My first question to you would be What is local?
1: Very good question. Local is a, a systemic path away from continuing to distance ourselves from nature from our place on the planet, and from our community. So we are not aware often of the extent to which a globalized economic system is tearing us apart from from nature, but also from one another, and pulling us into a competitive, highly energy and resource-intensive path where we're all running faster and faster and getting nowhere. So once we look at that economic system, that global economic system, it becomes very, very clear that we need to shift in the direction of localizing, of coming back to place. It's a type of at a deep level, it's a reindigenization, it's a reconnection that is also internal because the global economic system has succeeded in, in removing us so far from the living fabric of life around us, has done so by uh, pushing us into a way of seeing the world, into an educational system, schooling, and a type of knowledge where we become more and more fragmented from ourselves. We've overused our left brain and there are, you know, there's plenty of evidence now of how dangerous that is. So localizing is a, is a, at every level a process of reconnection, even in, in internal balancing where our brain is more connected to our heart, to our body, and to all of life, life in ourselves and life around us.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, 30 years ago, When I moved to New Mexico, I was in a group, and uh, this Native American gentleman said, uh, it's more important to know the seven miles around where you are than to travel the whole world. And I had traveled a lot, and I didn't understand that then. Yeah. But now it seems so... Important to be mixed with the land.
1: Yes, and and of course, the other thing about local is that when people today look at small local land based communities, they think that that's what we're talking about, but no. Most land-based communities have been marginalized for about 500 years. They've been deprived of their right to deeply know the water, the soil, the land they depend on. They've been, you know, essentially enslaved in a system that marginalized the small and the local. So we need to look to the very ancient, you know, as I say in my book, Ancient Futures, Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of knowing a people that had been allowed just by circumstances of being isolated from the rest of the world, up at 12,000 feet, surrounded by the Himalayas, and small communities on the Tibetan plateau had been allowed to continue developing and evolving in their own way, in their own place. And so that was a very rare Thing to experience a people and a culture that was so whole and so healthy and thriving. Um, so I often now talk about the old local, the ancient local versus the new local. And the new local is places like Santa Fe and Taos and mm-hmm. many, many pockets around the world where people who have traveled a lot and people who have lived in the cities and experienced a life of complete distance and alienation from nature Mm -hmm. you know the ultimate is the high-rise apartment in a, a city where there is no sign of anything living and where you're cut off from other people and people have experienced that are developing a thirst for life for connection to nature to the plants to the animals and to community to be seen and to be heard And so there are places like Santa Fe and many others around the world where people are collecting now and trying to, well, I was going to say they're trying to build something else. Sometimes it's a more intuitive reaction. And what we're trying to provide in local futures is a paradigm that shows that we mustn't forget about the economic system as part of the Absolutely necessary structural shift we need to make in order to make it possible to live in a happier and healthier way.
0: So, how can we? I mean, it's 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 sort of like uh, we are invaded by globalism. It's it it feels really invasive, and. Uh, for those who have had the, uh, the 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 great pleasure of because we're all we're all immigrants in some way we're all migrating around the planet and some of us like you and I have fallen in love with a different part of the planet than where we came in and That's so right. how can we we fight globalization and 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 recreate a culture that uh, that is communal.
1: Well, it's so interesting, you know, because I definitely see that very often. If I mean, most of the time, the people who are who love our work and who are very clear about the need to rebuild community and connection to place are. people who have traveled a lot and who have had experience, as I said, of the ultimate of this um, very competitive, patriarchal, globalizing system. And they having experienced that, they have a very, very strong uh, motivation to move in the opposite direction. You know, so the sort of typical picture now is the, you know, Silicon Valley executives who are going out to farm and find that farming is their passion. Uh, And there are, you know, more and more examples of that around the world. And, And paradoxically, yes, people who are more globalized, much more conscious about the need to localize. I think there's also a way in which those, often they are the new local who have come into an area for instance, like Santa Fe or many parts of America and other parts of the world, and very often the old-timers who might know a bit more about um, farming or practical skills, who might still have a bit more connection to their community, there can be, uh, you know, a tension between these two groups. But I think that what we're seeing is once we understand how important the economic transition is once we start putting out the message that we are trying to strengthen local economies worldwide we want to see you know thriving independent businesses in our local community and we want to build a relationship between the farmers and the consumers between the business owners and their community between the, the you know the people who are also producing other resources the wood or whatever other building materials we might be needing this building of relationships between this whole divide from the soil to the to the plate in terms of food from the land to the building materials, rebuilding those connections and connecting people across that whole spectrum is building beautiful examples of how localization can do away with ideological, political divides where people are lost in theoretical ideas about foreigners being terrible and, uh, you know, Lots of prejudice thrives when there is no intimate knowledge of others. And in, in, the, in this process of localization, we see people who get to know each other as human beings, as individuals. We see how the prejudice and the ideological categories can fall away. So I'm so privileged, I feel, You know to have helped to catalyze many initiatives around the world, and to see that it really is—it's where it's at. It's absolutely—it's how we evolved. It's how we must live if we want to survive. But it's also how we must live if we want to thrive.
0: Well, uh, I got—I got got a word: uh, new local, not nouveau riche. Oh, yes uh, yes, except opposites. it's that opposite i I was thinking, of course, food has always been a way of uh, introducing intimacy between people
1: yes and food, you know is what most of us in our entire evolution we were involved in gathering, growing, processing cooking, eating together. That was central. And the emergence of different cultures around the world was because there was a deep dialogue between people and their place, their environment. And that meant we had different foods, we had different cultures, we had different races as a consequence of that adaptation to place. And that diversity... Is fundamental for our survival it's fundamental to life diversity and we don't often recognize how in the cultural shift that has happened now which is very positive there's a, a huge cultural shift that we should step back and value that in the dominant culture we have moved away from what was very explicit, articulated racism, misogyny. You know, we're talking about an economic system that was based on force, genocide, slavery, and and we mustn't forget about all the women, millions of women who were burned at the stake. This was the foundation of our modern global economic system. And that system as a structural part which supports global traders and global players that started off as the slave owners, that system structurally has continued. But culturally, there's been a big shift towards valuing the feminine, towards respect for other cultures. But what we have to be clear about is that the sort of multiculturalism in our big cities in no way actually values genuine cultural diversity. It is a a superficial supermarket version of diversity. So just like we in our supermarkets can have wonderful Japanese food and and French cheeses and (laughs) food from all over the world, that supermarket system at the source, at the level of production, at the level of the living soil, the living animals is destroying, is killing. It's a you know it's a system of deadly monocultures that we know with factory farming what it looks like with animals, but in terms of soya beans and almonds and everything we need, it's a disaster. It destroys the soil, it poisons the water, which is completely unnatural. So I think. Coming back to focusing on food and the revitalization of diversity is the best way to understand how we could very practically and rather rapidly transform this very unhealthy and, and, and deadly direction towards something life affirming and thriving. So in the in the local food economies. that we have contributed to catalyzing and starting around the world, people are demonstrating that it's possible at the same time to increase the productivity of any given piece of land. If you take a thousand hectares or one acre of land, and you shift away from monoculture to diversity, you will always be able to produce much more. And so this path of diversification is fundamental to the path of localization because you need to shorten the distance between the market and the farm in order to have a market that encourages diversity. And this is uh, why it is such a win-win and an absolutely necessary part. And it's just, yeah, you know, it's wonderful to see how... Um, by the way, I hope you've seen that film, The Biggest Little Farm. Not yet. I highly recommend it. It just, in a wonderful graphic way, shows exactly how the process of diversification is... You know, absolutely essential and so inspiring. Now I would just like to add to that film they don't talk about it from that bigger picture that we talk about to understand that this path does actually produce more food per acre of land and they also don't talk about how that path can produce the opportunities for many, many more meaningful livelihoods So the global path that's being imposed on us still, despite our shift in cultural values, the globalizing path that's being imposed on us is still about using more and more energy, more and more resources to replace more and more people in every endeavor, in teaching, in medicine, in publishing, and whatever you care to mention. People are being dumped in favor of using scarce resources, mineral resources, mining the seabed for electric cars, etc. All of that and replacing people. This is on a crowded planet where the most abundant, overabundant natural resource is human being. So the part of localizing is the part that meaningfully and joyfully can allow people to be engaged in a truly productive way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's okay. incredibly important that we come back to a more human scale, slower pace. Um, the slower pace is the human pace, is the ecological pace. It takes time to nurture, to care, to know, to deeply see you know, whether you're talking about an apple tree or your granddaughter, mm-hmm. life requires the time, uh, as I say, to care, to nurture, to love. Yes,
0: yes. In your in your book, you have a conversation with Wendell Berry, and uh, what um, well, it's a beautiful conversation. One of the things that caught my attention was the idea of acceptance of limits. I mean, it seems that we have so inflated our sense of limits that uh, to come back to right limit is practically impossible. So I'd like you to talk about how, how delicious the right feeling of limit is.
1: Yes, and I mean I also would want to want to point out that so much of what's happening is not happening because individuals can't accept limits. It's happening because we allowed, blindly allowed, unconsciously allowed, an economic path to continue unabated without the majority of people are having any idea what's happening so we the after the second world war mm-hmm. the restructuring of the economy to globalize through trade treaties this is not something that was discussed with the public with the voter both right. left and right went along with this path even in sweden after the war What was brought in was fossil fuel based agriculture using lots of machines, lots of fossil fuels, driving people off the land, driving people progressively more and more into a few big cities, using architecture, you know, concrete and steel, again, using lots of fossil fuels and energy and employing fewer and fewer people, cutting people off from social relationships. Um, of interdependence and, you know, relying on one another instead of anonymous abstract institutions. And it led to loneliness, depression, alcoholism, and huge ecological problems. But there wasn't an understanding of how fundamentally that was about this globalizing economy and how it was handing more and more power over to global banks and corporations Because so much of it was brought in with idealism, with good intention, believing that agriculture had been drudgery, because it had been drudgery as people had been colonized and enslaved and forced to stand in a cotton field day in and day out, behaving like a machine. Mm -hmm. Once Mm -hmm. you had that, bringing in the machinery looked like progress. But the baseline wasn't that, you know, for tens of thousands of years in Asia there had been small scale diversified agriculture that worked very well and, and anyway the, I'm sorry if I'm being so long winded no, no, but uh, you know so, so that we need to really understand this structural path that's been embraced by both left and right unquestioningly believing that more and more technology and that more and more global trade is to our advantage and then, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we had an emerging, very powerful uh, environmental movement mm-hmm. that was demanding decentralization. People wanted to go back to the land. They wanted decentralized renewable energy. And there was also, because of Rachel Carson, a demand yes. for holistic interdisciplinary knowledge. She was warning about over-specialized science linked to this Fast paced techno economic globalizing path. And so there were, you know, there was a huge demand and there were some initiatives taken, but unfortunately the globalizing path was not identified and not questioned clearly. And then, you know, I'm afraid to say that computers and the internet were brought in as some great decentralizing tools, which they weren't. They've actually centralized power even more Mm. and uh, created, you know, a super-globalized corporate empire, really, that's now behind the scenes, pulling the strings. You know, it's, it's, it's shaping our policies, it's shaping the media, it's shaping virtually all our avenues of knowledge, That can sound overwhelming, but from my point of view, the most important thing is that all of those caring people around the planet, and there are billions, billions of people who care about the future of their children, who want to see a healthier environment, who are... uh, and there are also throughout throughout the world, now, there are more and more people who are willing, even as they struggle to pay the mortgage, they're still doing some kind of volunteerism, they're still doing some kind of donation to try to make something a little bit better. And my prayer is that all of those people wake up to the incredible advantage and opportunity uh, if we look at the global system and start coming together to have our voices heard, even if we're, you know, just obsessed with having greater job security, having some kind of pension, worried about the gap between rich and poor, or if we're worried about climate change, loss of democracy, if we can just come together to realize that this economic shift is what we all have to focus on. The economy either created the problems we're concerned with or exacerbated the problems. And even if there is some issue that wasn't created by the economy or exacerbated by it, now we're in a situation where there will not be any money to deal with the issue you care about. So really, really, we must look towards this economic transition. And then I am convinced that the majority of people have no problem whatsoever recognizing limits. They could never, if they had the right, for instance in Santa Fe, to bring in a measure of GDP to measure their progress, they would never in a million years call it progress when every single tree on the hillside was cut down or when every drop of water was so polluted that people had to buy it in bottles. Mm -hmm. Once we get more experiential knowledge and life, human beings seeing the impact of what they do, we cannot have the madness that we have now. So the distance between human beings and the impact they have in the world, the distance that means that we are all trapped into this large-scale machine A machine that now Is literally running the show A machine that includes Making money out of thin air Created as debt impoverishing our governments It is such a stupid And really insane system That even for the CEO of Exxon That wasn't a big enough company They had to merge with mobile And that meant there's only one CEO job So literally, everybody's running scared in the system, even at the top level of global cooperation. But how the post-war commitment to creating trade treaties, to creating a globalized economy, how that has created a rat race, that means that everybody's running faster and faster and faster and more insecure, and how as a system, it's chewing up the planet using more and more resources, more and more energy as we speak. That big picture is what we absolutely need to then plan and structure a path towards localization that doesn't, you know, shut down General Electric overnight, doesn't shut anything down overnight. It's a transition. Everything is changing. Are we going to move? towards this rat race to go to Mars and use minerals on Mars? Are we going to fall for the techno, you know, infantile dreams of a few wealthy men? Or are we going to listen to women, to indigenous people, to farmers, to people who have some sense of life and move in a life-affirming path? We can do it. We can do it. You know, we can see in so many cases the remarkable restoration of life with, you know, toxic, dead soil given life and given a chance to recreate the cycles of interdependence, the cycles of life that that we do know something about and that we, we can see the incredible rapid restoration that can happen. And I also just want to add that people often get so disempowered by saying... Oh people don't care this is the propaganda now coming out of a techno machine is the propaganda the problem is human beings problem is human beings robots are going to be more compassionate more kind more wise we have to wake up to this propaganda it's absolutely deadly and it's linked to a part that will that will destroy most life on earth it will destroy most human beings, and of course life in some form will go on. But this is not emanating from human beings. This is emanating from an inhuman system, inhuman scale, over-specialized knowledge, and boyish fantasies that have so much power because they have a lot of dollar bills in their pockets. We really have to wake up and we have to listen also to our inner voice um, we know that this is the wrong path and more and more people are waking up to their thirst their hunger for reconnection to nature and reconnection to community
0: I wanted to, uh, to say that I think that uh, we have um, a, a problem of abstraction and you mentioned that in your book um that and I think that comes from lack of intimacy, great, great, great fear of intimacy. And yes. so I want to ask you, what does a uh, a local a local healthy relationship look like between human beings?
1: Yeah, that's a very important question. And I feel that I had the great privilege of, of really experiencing that in the ancient, you know, indigenous culture of, of Ladakh. Yes. And, and I saw even much, much later, I mean, later in the sense of the whole development process, living in a Spanish village for the 80s, I saw even there much more of the intergenerational community fabric alive.
0: Where and, was that? Where was that? Oh,
1: uh, that was near Gaufin. You know Gaufin?
0: And oh, oh, my goodness. I, uh, in 2003 and uh, 2004, I went to live in Gaufin for five years. Really? Yes. Isn't that amazing? Oh, that is amazing. I had a feeling you were going to say that.
1: (laughs) Really? Well, Marco, I'd love to hear more about that, but I guess we should wait till after that.
0: Okay, okay. So, you were in the Spanish village. Yeah,
1: and and saw how in the 80s, the same supercharged commercial monoculture that was invading Ladakh and Bhutan, where we also worked over a five-year period, literally the same Barbie dolls, the same Rambos were being imposed on the minds of young children, massively polarizing gender roles, and most importantly, creating deep self-loathing and insecurity in young people. It was just horrific to see it, and And part of the process was also this segregation of intergenerational community relationships. So in the early uh, 80s, even in Spanish village, uh, in the evening, you know, long, hot evenings in the summer, and you would have, you know, in the discoteca, you would have the 80-year-old grandmother and the Mm -hmm. young baby and the whole family there. Yep. And so friends who would visit from England and with their teenage children were just amazed that suddenly their children were willing to be seen with them and to actually hang out with them in the evening. Because in England, the whole consumer culture had gone that much further, as in America, uh, so that it was the most uncool thing imaginable to be seen hanging out with your parents or grandparents. So this, you know, sort of invisible thread... Of this globalized commercial system and the disastrous segregation of human relationships is something that is again it's so vital that we see that bigger picture and more consciously understand what we can do what we must do to regain our humanity so we've been we've been in this through these tentacles of psychological warfare basically uh, People have ended up so separated, first of all, from people of different ages. You know, it starts when you put 31-year-old children in a kindergarten. You're creating a knife between relationships. You have these children all struggling to walk, so it's all elbows and screaming and no opportunity at all to lend a helping hand. So having lived in a culture where it was just completely natural that you would never, ever see that segregation. So you would have a one-year-old with a three-year-old with an eight-year-old with an 80-year-old. So you have natural collaboration. Of course the three-year-old will reach out a hand and help the one-year-old work, walk absolutely, naturally, spontaneously. And of course the one-year-old looks up to the three-year-old and doesn't think, oh, what's wrong with me? I can't walk as fast as, as my brother can. Yeah. Yeah. So you have You have this natural, structural collaboration when you do not segregate into monoculture. Mm -hmm. So again, Mm -hmm. monoculture imposed on the land has been imposed on us. Now, the monoculture has also extended into us being told that we have to work, you know, starting already in the womb, people are worried that their children will not go to the best school and then have this really great opportunity to get them best job in the city Mm -hmm. and already there there is this monoculture being bred that they have to be, you know, like they have to be a lawyer, they have to be an engineer they have to be something and certainly it's not about being a farmer Um, and so what you see then is this huge pressure starting already, you know, kindergarten school, all of it built on competition and a sense of scarcity so that sense of scarcity didn't exist in traditional economies. There was never ever any such thing as unemployment. There was never ever such a thing that a human being didn't have several meaningful functions. So what we are beginning to see, and, but I also want to say something more about the deeper psychological effect of this, and, What I experienced in Ladakh, you know, speaking the language fluently and living with the people, it took me many years to actually really wake up to many of the complex uh, issues that this, you know, entail. But after many years, you know, year by year, I was waking up more. And one of the things I realized was that when you grow up in in a broader intergenerational group, your sense of identity is so fundamentally different from in the nuclear family. So you already have a much, much more collaborative and helpful structure, naturally collaborative. You have a situation where the wife or mother is never totally dependent on her husband for her emotional needs. Whether it's sharing the joy or sharing the grief or a problem or practical, there are many people to turn to. Wow. Every mother had about 10 living caretakers for every child. The end result on this was that you had a deep intimacy and a deep wow. ability to share and care. Mm-hmm. You had a deep you know intimacy and an ability to share and care that once you create the nuclear family, you created this really frightening little. Shell where the intensity of the relationships is far too demanding. <sighs> it's the, the way we evolved, you know. One mother at home with the husband off in, in office all day, looking after a child. It's a it's a torture chamber because it's Terrifying. completely unnatural. That child needs many, many more eyes, many more hands to support it, to look. You know look out for it, and not to make it the center of the universe, but that child becomes a part of a group, and but a part of a group that knows that it's seen and heard and loved. So now what we've created is this really, uh, it couldn't be more evil, really, it couldn't be more destructive. You know, if the devil had thought of this system, they couldn't more effectively have figured out how to make people unhappy, how to make people guilty, how to make people insecure. And um, what's happened is that the rise of the nuclear family preceded the introduction of the screen. But the screen was a major tool. you know. And again, it came in very much after that Second World War, when the whole society was being transformed in a major way into an urban, isolated, nuclear family life, and then comes the screen with a happy, beautiful, successful, wealthy nuclear family, and suddenly you are really miserable. You are, Your life is so difficult, it's so boring, you're not a good enough mother, you're not a good enough father, you're not a good enough you know, to look after your parents, So it's just and then inside that little nuclear family, what happens is that the boundaries to the outside world become harder and harder. It's only inside that little shell that you sort of know each other the way you are, and the way you are inside that shell is not very attractive. And in the meanwhile, to the outside world, you're putting on this image, trying to appear so perfect, so happy, And all the time the screen is telling you, you know, that's what you need to be. And it's all the time romanticizing, of course, the urban consumer path, the urban consumer path to success, to wealth, to power, to excitement. And there you are, you know, pretty lonely, pretty miserable. And then the idea... Of actually sitting down and saying to another member of another nuclear family that actually things aren't that great, and you know, we really aren't getting on that well, that is also disappearing as professionalism ties you in with you know professional psychotherapists. You know, then you know you depend on and pay money to, but the genuine connection that comes from the interdependence and the deep interconnection that we evolved with and that we all long for isn't answered through that. Mm -hmm. So now also we've moved on to the screens where even five-year-old children using their mobile phones are continuing this process. So when they take photos of themselves at their party, and they all have to have very expensive, fancy parties now, then there's this show of competition and the children who weren't part of that feel left behind and you know five year old girls getting off Facebook will say that they feel more depressed you know they feel left behind they feel not as good at so the answer is yes. consciousness about this and an awareness of the fact that the majority of people long for connection that the majority of people are not perfect and that so much of our imperfection is because we've been unwittingly going along with the path of progress, where we've ended up, you know, supporting and imposing a lot of this stuff on ourselves and our own children, because we haven't seen the connections, and we have above all we haven't seen the connection to our deep unhappiness, to our deep loss of you know self-respect, and uh, our deep. Genuine individualism, being allowed to be who we are, all of us different, all of us unique. We have a system now that keeps on and on about individualism and and, uh, it's actually the most torturous monocultural imposition that uh, destroys, you know, at its core, at the level of our hearts, at the level, you know, of our deep soul. Mm Destroys the ability to be ourselves. So I think understanding that to me, you know, it feels like yes. the solution is pretty obvious, but no, we do need to spell out really clearly that please make a conscious effort to connect with some like-minded people in the area around you, not, you know, best friend with your immediate neighbor or anything, but a way to seek out like-minded people can be to show a film, for instance, like our film, to, to look for people who clearly are interested in more community, more connection to nature, but then form hubs, you know, what we call local futures hubs, where you meet regularly, maybe it's once a month, maybe even once a week, with a group of between three to probably no more than 20, 25 people, to explore how can we start together? How can we change the I to a we? How can we move yes. in a direction that is personally healing and healing for the planet? Yes, And then this multi-layered localization is part of that. And a central part of it is developing deep, intimacy and being able to be vulnerable, being able to say, yes, I am not perfect, and I've got this problem, and I have this fear, mm-hmm. and daughter has been on the verge of suicide, and you would be amazed at how healing that process is. Beautiful. And it turns into also a process of building that deep interdependence, that translates into practical help as well. And 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 again, this is we're taking ourselves on a journey which is rebuilding the the you know, the indigenous interdependence with which we evolved. And so it's it, because it's so deep within us, that knowledge, we all have a little light in us. We haven't all been totally deadened. Much. it can be a path that can proceed very rapidly
0: Thank you Helena we're coming to uh, the end of this conversation and uh, having uh, having had a conversation with you two or three years ago here in San Fe uh, I would like to ask you in closing uh, what is the most important Thing you have learned in the past three years?
1: Oh, that's
0: interesting. Huh. Hmm.
1: Oh, what's the most
0: important thing? Yeah, it's what has touched you the most and felt... What's touched me the most? Yeah. Yeah,
1: what, what's touched me the most? Well, just, you know, just deep, deep Uh, you know sort of agonizing pain at seeing you know more and more people suffering and every day I also get in my inbox you know I get information about a, a wake up that's going on and about you know heartwarming wonderful initiatives that all reaffirm that this life affirming path is the way to go you know everything from just you know yesterday on the radio, a teacher talking about as part of her well-being, she brings a dog into the school. Mm-hmm. You know we don't realize how much we thirst for a relationship with animals. Yes, which also, by the way, is another whole discussion about domesticated animals. As I've experienced it in many cultures, is a very important part of developing relationships. Um, and, and anyway, but there, I get. Yeah, every single day I get reaffirmed. Uh, You know, I get evidence of people turning towards this life affirming path. I get information about more and more scientific discoveries that reinforce it. You know, like now, you know, scientific studies on what happens to our brain when we sing together. Mm -hmm. You know, this is again part of how we evolve most cultures forever sang, chanted, made music together, it wasn't about someone being a star and then most people being spectators. Right. Just that alone, you know, the, the poverty that we experience in modern, you know, middle-class life where the majority of people are basically made to feel they can't sing. It's just remarkable. And equally wonderful is to see that like, choirs and even more importantly, because choirs are still about performance usually, but the more and more now singing groups emerging where people just get together to sing or chant together. It's like huge healing. It's a a huge path also towards a type of vulnerability that can open us up very rapidly. Um, So I get evidence of this happening at every level, all these micro trends taking us in the right direction. But I just also I'm so grateful that you're doing this podcast because the awareness about this is of course pretty buried and you know we're in a unique position in that we're in touch with many groups so we get to hear about yeah. so many of these things. But I just, you know, I so the the biggest issue really is big picture activism. It is getting out this information. This understanding of what's going on and the two divergent paths, and that we can, you know, much more consciously join and be part of what is an emerging and very very big localization movement. Every day growing, but we have to, you know, make sure that it grows enough to outdo the other direction.
0: Helen, I am so grateful for your exquisite aliveness. Oh, thank you. Yes. Same to you. Thank you, thank you, and um, we we will meet again for sure in our yeah, yeah in our journeys of we must yes yes.